I'm excited about Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are excited about this book. We are excited about this day. We are excited about who you are and what you're doing in our midst. And we ask that by the power of your spirit this morning into this afternoon, God, that you would speak and be heard through your perfect word, through the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me kind of echo something Will just said. Um, he was thanking David and Andrew. Um, I was usually, I, I do my work in Apple Pages and everything syncs and everything, don't ever have a problem until this morning. I was opening up the message, the eight and a half page message that I just buttoned up this morning and um, it wasn't there. It's the first time that's ever happened. And I'm like, okay, all right, yeah. turn it off, turn it back on, restart it, ba, 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 ba. not there. Turn it off, turn it back on, restart it, not there. So I get up and I go into the back there in the coffee room and I'm like, oh boy. I'm trying everything. I'm looking, I'm Googling, I'm doing everything. It's not there. The only thing that was there were the verses, which is how I start my prep. I just put the verses on a page. And it was like it, it hadn't changed since last Sunday when I put the verses for this Sunday. Um, so I fervently texted Andrew and I said, can you please come in the coffee room? He probably thought I was having a stroke or something. I don't know what he thought. I said, my, my message is not here. And he's like, oh, so he started doing the same thing I was doing. It wasn't there. And then he pointed and clicked and it was there. So thank you, tech team. Thank you, Andrew, for, for finding that this morning. So anyway... All that drama aside, man, what, what in the world are we supposed to do with these four verses? Well, first of all, we're only going to cover three of them, just so you know. Um, they, they teach you in public speaking, which I am not um, very taught in, by the way. Um, they teach you to start your speech or to start your spiel with a hook, right? You start with a hook. Good speakers and teachers have a hook at the beginning of their presentation and think fish of, right? To get you stuck, to get you caught, to get people's attention so that they engage you early on. Well, how about this hook? How about these first four verses of this book? In a tome that speaks of the excellency of Jesus in over 13 chapters, the writer here just absolutely hits the ground running at foot speed of about 20 miles an hour. 
I would say 100 miles an hour, but nobody can run 100 miles an hour. So he hits the ground running about 20 miles an hour. Boom! And there's so much to cover here. And God, please help us to at least grasp the enormity of this. What ultimately, I mean, it's going to be an hour or so. Still going to be a very brief overview of these three verses that we're going to cover this morning. And I want to, I want to let you know up front, we're going to see some absolutely... Not big ticket items. We're going to see huge ticket items in these three verses that we plan to cover today. Again, I know we read four, but verse four is really a conclusion of a thought that leads into next week's message, Lord willing. So we won't really dive into verse four, but I think we needed to read it to get the complete thought. But we will see how it relates to what we do cover today. And what we will look at today is so ginormous that we will really just have to fly over it as best we can. But I want to kind of give you a preview of, <laughs> of some of the things that we'll see today. Um, there are at least, and again, the, at the very least, seven major, again, top shelf, major doctrinal slash theological concepts that we'll see in these three little verses today. And don't get overwhelmed and think, oh my gosh, no way... I'm not, we're not going to try to cover it all. We can't. It's impossible. Um, but these seven concepts, these seven areas of, of theology that we'll see in these three verses are first, what is called theology proper. Theology proper is simply the study of God. That's what theology proper is. We're going to see that today. We're going to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. The study of the Word of God. We're going to look into Christology, the study of the person and the work of Christ. We're going to look at the incarnation, the study of how God became enfleshed in the person of Jesus. We're going to see the doctrine of creation, the study of the beginning of all things. We're going to look at the doctrine of Trinitarianism, the study of the truth of there being one God in three persons. And lastly, we're going to talk about the truth of the atonement. The study of how God used the death of Jesus to forgive our sins. Now, all seven of those could be books. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that to be silly or funny. It's the truth. All seven of those topics, and they are. There's, there's myriads of books about all seven of these topics. But we're going to go over it in three verses. So, and again, please understand, these are major pillars of the building of our faith. These are major concepts that we have to grasp, that we have to latch onto and know so that we know what is essential in and about the Christian faith. And that's how the writer opens this. And again, I, I, I hesitate to call it a letter. It's more like a, a message, like we said last week. It's more like a, a teaching. So we shall not dilly, nor shall we dally. We're going to jump right in here, starting with verse 1. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, 17 words in this verse. If you want to count them to check and make sure you can. Trust me though, there are 17. 17 words in this verse and they are just packed with implications for us as we start this passage in this book. So let me read it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And note the comma there at the end of the verse. This is the beginning of a thought, not the whole thought. We'll get the rest in verse 2. But we have enough to consider here first. So how does the writer start his sermon? By saying two major truths that in his estimation are not up for a debate. Okay? 
The first truth is there is a God. The second truth is this God has spoken. There is a God. He has spoken. Those two statements in and of themselves are truly revolutionary for every person in this building this morning. For every person that hears my voice, for every person that doesn't hear my voice. It's revolutionary to understand that there's a God. It's revolutionary to understand that that God has spoken. First, there is a God. I mentioned theology proper in the intro there. And that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're looking at here. The study of God. And again, that is literally what theology proper is. Well, our writer says that there is a God. Actually, he is saying that there is one God. He doesn't say in the beginning a God spoke. He doesn't say one of the gods spoke. He says God. Actually, the Greek here says ho-theos, which means the God. Singular, special, spectacular. No other like Him. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, the God spoke. The God existed. There is the God. And again, the writer is not debating whether or not this is true. He doesn't say, consider with me, if you will, whether or not this is true. He is simply referencing the truth, the foundational truth, that this, the God, exists. He's not making an apologetic for the possibility of there being a God. He's referencing the fact that the God has been around for at least a long time. Long ago, he says. Now remember, we are confident that this sermon slash letter was written to a primarily Jewish audience. And those Jews, called Hebrews, were very prone and very proud to refer back to their past. Abraham, Moses, David, and so many others are the proud heritage of these people who called themselves and were called God's chosen people. So here at the very start of the writing, the writer looks back to long ago. And what happened back in the long ago? Well, God was there. And at many times and in many ways through that long ago time, God spoke. Now again, don't miss the enormity of that statement. This is the doctrine of Scripture. There exists a collection of writings, listen, that are God's very words. Amen. We went to Monticello for our anniversary um, back in June. I can't, I, can't say, I can't believe I'm saying back in June. It's, it's not June anymore. But they had things that literally were Thomas Jefferson's there. I'm like, this is really cool. Those were really his. Those were his books. That was the, my favorite thing to see. His books. Not all the books that were there were his, but some of them were. They had them encased in, in, in glass by, so you couldn't touch them. Why? Because they're special. Listen, y'all. There exists... In our day, in our time, a collection of God's very words. Amen. And how did that happen? Well, the God who is spoke. That word, spoke, means to use words in order to declare one's mind and disclose one's thoughts. 
So the question is, did God show up? Hey, y'all, I'm God. Let me tell you some stuff. And write this down, if you would, because it's going to be very, very convenient. It may, Maybe even a tape recorder, if you got one of those, so that you don't miss anything. Is that how it worked? Video camera would be even better, right? That, that way we could see God. No. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So our writer says that a long time before the time he is writing, which was the first century A.D., that this speaking God spoke to his and his readers' fathers, their ancestors, how? By the prophets. Now this just further establishes the thought we mentioned last week that the audience of this letter is primarily Jewish because who are these prophets that the writer is referring to? Those who wrote what we call the Old Testament, which are the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so that just verifies the veracity of this being to a Jewish audience. But back at the statement. Again, the God spoke to their fathers, and God did so how? Through the prophets. Listen, listen. God chose men to speak directly to. And what did that look like? Well, at many times and in many ways, God gave messages to these men who would relay them to God's people. Sometimes it was an audible word. Moses heard the voice of God. Sometimes it was a dream. Sometimes a vision. Sometimes a song. At many times... And in many ways. Think of all the different kinds of literature in the Old Testament. Historical, wisdom, poetry, songs, prophecy, story. And God used all of these means to reveal Himself and His plans to His people. Stop for a second. Don't miss that sentence. God used all of these means, all of these types of literature, and He spoke them Two men to reveal himself and his plans to his people. Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So, the God who is, is also the God who speaks in order to show what he's like, in order to show what He demands and to show us His very heart. That's the doctrine of Scripture. The eternal, omnipotent, loving God of the universe had a plan from eternity past to show Himself to the world He had created by having men write down and pass down what He told them to. If I uncrumpled a piece of paper, unfolded a piece of paper and I said... I don't know. Pick somebody. Um, I gotta be careful who I pick here, right? Um, uh, I don't know. I've got in my hands a personal letter from. I don't know. I don't know who's somebody that you revere. I don't know who it would be. I'm afraid to say something. I don't know. And I said, but he wrote this with his very own hand. You'd go, wow, that's awesome. The God who is from eternity past had a plan to write letters to us so that we would know who He is, what His plan was, what He's like, and what He wants for us. 
And he showed up and he talked to men and he gave men dreams and he inspired songs. He said, write that down and preserve that because I want everybody for all time to know what I said. He could have done it in any way at all. He could have had golden tablets. He could have done secret messages in the clouds. But he chose to reveal himself to his people by speaking to individual men and having them relay that that they received to those whom he had chosen to show himself. That's how the God spoke long ago, our writer tells us. But again, that's just the first part of the thought. Second verse. Oh my word. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. What a verse. Jesus is better, right? The God had chosen to speak to His creation, to speak to His people in the past through prophets, but... And what is that word? That word is our favorite contrastive conjunction, right? The writer is going to take what he just said about God speaking through the prophets long ago in many ways, and he's going to contrast that with something else. There were prophets, but now what? Well, the good news is that God wasn't done speaking after the time of the Old Testament prophets. When Malachi received that last word 400 and some odd years before Jesus came, and there was a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, thank God, literally, that God wasn't done speaking. There were prophets, but now what? That was then. This is now. That was long ago. Now these are the last days. And let me just say, I don't think this is talking in terms of like eschatology in times necessarily. I see it more like the line of Back then in that economy, contrasted with now in this economy, God's plan economy. Like there are two time periods when God has spoken long ago through the prophets and now in a final last way. I'm comfortable with seeing the New Testament writers speaking of the last days as having started at the time of Jesus. Peter says in his sermon in Acts 2.17, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. That's Peter quoting Joel to talk about the last days starting. There is a mindset that the last days in a prophetic sense started when Jesus came. But back in our passage from today, our writer here is seemingly contrasting how God spoke then long ago with now in these last days. I like how commentator Donald Guthrie explains it. Quote, In these last days could be understood to mean at the end of these days, which points most clearly to a crisis. A new decisive revelation contrasted both with the variety of modes and the necessity in the past for repetition. A once-for-all revelation is clearly superior. The writer may have been thinking of the last days as the concluding days of the pre-Christian period, much as the Jewish teachers divided time between the present age and the age of the Messiah. 
He goes on to say, according to this view, since Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the quote, last days were the end of the old era, but in view of the corresponding expression at the end of the age, which we'll see in 926 in a couple years, it is more probable that these last days refers to the Christian era, which involves a new era compared with the old, end of quote. So, he used to speak like this, but now that everything's changed, he speaks like this. And in these last days, in this new Christian era, how did God speak? But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. How gloriously, amazingly, jam-packed with implications and doctrine that little phrase is. Thirteen words there. But in his last days, there's none. In those 13 words, we have a menagerie of colossal truths. We see the doctrine of Scripture again. God didn't just speak and reveal himself through Old Testament prophets. No, he continued to speak through his Son. And who is the Son of God? Jesus is. And we'll get into that through the rest of the book. He doesn't name him here, but we know who he's talking about. And so we move directly from the doctrine of Scripture into Christology, the study of the person and work of Jesus. And who is Jesus said to be here? He is the Son of God. Now we hear that, Son of God. Jesus is Son of God. He's the Son of God, Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. We talk about it a lot at Christmas, Son of God, Son of God. But, but don't pass by that often used phrase. Okay, The God who speaks and reveals Himself to His people has a son. An S-O-N. How does that work? Well, that takes us into the doctrine of the incarnation. Luke 1, 26-35. Not, not Luke, 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 Bible Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God... To a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nowhere in the Jewish economy, by the way. Nazareth was nowhere. And God sent an angel to talk to a lady, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Nice to meet you, Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Parenthesis, why? Because she was good? No. Because God shows favor to people. Parenthesis over. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, um, I need to tell you something. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Mr. Angel Man. And the angel answered her, oh, oh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We don't wonder at that enough. Now, 
Every single word of that is important if we're going to understand what God has done here. And of course, we don't have time to parse it all out word by word. We're not doing Luke right now. We're, not, we're in Hebrews. But note that an angel came, sent from God, angels who are messengers. A messenger was sent, Gabriel was sent, to a young lady who had never been with a man sexually. And he told her, this angel told her, that the Spirit of God was going to come upon her with the power of the Most High overshadowing her and she would conceive in her physical body, in her womb, a physical child who would be the Holy Son of God. Now we're into Trinitarianism, right? We're also into the virgin birth, we're into angels and all kinds of stuff that we don't have time to cover this morning. But listen... Don't take this to be some Zeus-like, God is promiscuous, sexual overtone. Please don't do that. This is holy, pure, and beautiful, and unique in all of history. What is happening here is that God is becoming a literal, physical person. Truly God and truly man. The divine nature is poured into, if you will, a human container. And the physical aspect is there, as is the God aspect. And Jesus is conceived supernaturally by God, by the Spirit, in order to be born naturally. People said stupid stuff like, it, Mary probably didn't even experience pain when she gave birth. Horse feathers. <laughs> Babies hurt when they come out. Sorry, Anna. I don't want to do that. <laughs> This supernatural child was to be born naturally. And as the Son of God, He is God in the flesh. He is a man who is God. And you might ask, how can this be? Well, Gabriel gives us this answer indirectly when he speaks to Mary just a couple verses later when he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. God became a man. But remember, what we're talking about is the fact that He is the Son of God. So is the Son of God, God? Well, the writer of Hebrews clarifies that when he finishes this verse by saying, let me go back there, whom, His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. <laughs> now don't miss that. When you think of Jesus as the Son of God, don't get stuck on a picture of a kid who looks something like his dad. No, this is the human form of God Himself. Son of God refers to Jesus' role in the Godhead. Which again takes us into Trinitarianism. A.W. Pink says this about Jesus' Sonship. Quote, Christ is the Son of God in two respects. First, eternally so, as the second person in the Trinity, very God of very God. Second, Pink says, He is also the Son as incarnate. When He took upon Him sinless human nature, He did not cease to be God, nor did He, as some blasphemously teach, empty Himself of His divine attributes, which are inseparable from the divine being. End of quote. To recognize Jesus as the Son of God is to know Him as both God and man. 
to know His role as Son in relationship to the Father and Spirit, three in one within the Trinity, and it's also to know Him in relation to His role in God's plan of redemption. And we'll get to that in a few. So back here in Hebrews, in contrast to God speaking to a human being that He entrusted to relay His words to other human beings like He did long ago through the prophets, in these last days, in contrast to that, God became a man taking the form of God the Son, and as the Son incarnate, God spoke. Jesus, with His life, His ministry, and His teaching, spoke the divine incarnate Word. And what He spoke through His life was, I am God. This is who I am and what I am like. And in contrast to a partial and progressive word like what was spoken through the prophets, God said, in Jesus, all of that pointed to me. And here in me, you can find all you need to know about me and you can find all you need to know in order to know me. And uh, we could linger here a long time, but well, time. So this verse ends by showing and saying how Jesus' sonship is shown. But in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So here, Jesus the Son is said to be the heir of all things and the one through whom He also created the world. These are just jam-packed. So Jesus will inherit all things. Technically, kind of already has. And as the Son of God and as the Son of God, He is shown to be the agent of creation. And again, the writer of Hebrews does not try to prove these statements. He just makes them absolutely. Jesus, as God the Son, is the heir of the Father's kingdom. And God the Father is the sovereign over every molecule in the universe. It all belongs to Him. So it's all the sons as well, right? Jesus, as the Son, is the heir of all things as the Son would naturally be, the only begotten Son would be of the Father. That's not too tough to take in, right? But that last part is a little bit more tricky to figure out what it means that through whom also He created the world. Now, who created all things? Genesis 1.1. Probably heard this a few times, right? In the beginning... Jesus created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the Father created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But now watch this. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the God who is, the God who speaks, said, said, let there be light. And there was light. So in the beginning, God created. Now, quick bracket here too. The beginning of what? Was God existing before this? Of course He was. Who created God? Nobody created God. 
the uncaused cause of everything else. So in the beginning of time, in the beginning of the created order, God said. God created. God had existed eternally before this, which is not really right to say. It's wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, right? Eternity is not in time. So God had always existed, and then at the beginning of time, He created the heavens and the earth. Don't miss that. God is eternal. God, the Trinitarian God, is eternal. Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal. So in the beginning, God created. Then the Spirit of God, speaking Trinitarianly, was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, God who is Spirit, who doesn't have a form, God said, let there be light. Now remember, we believe in one God and three persons. That's the faithful testimony of the full counsel of the Scripture. And we see it here. We see God, who as often as not could be considered God the Father, Then we see God's Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, well, John 1 calls Jesus what? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here in Hebrews 1, we know that God spoke through Jesus, the Son. So Jesus, the Word, capital W Word, was present when God spoke. The one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was fully active in creation And again, note the verb tense there. The one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit, not were fully active. The one true God was fully active. Father, Son, and Spirit in creation. So it is absolutely correct, imagine that, to say that God created the world through His Son. Because how did He do it? He spoke it. And the divine Word, which is Jesus, created the world. And again, so much more we could say here, but we have another densely loaded verse to get through to bring today's study to a conclusion. We're going to read verses 3 and 4, but again, we'll just cover verse 3. Speaking of this Son, speaking of the One who is the heir of all things, speaking of the One through whom God created all things, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and if that wasn't enough. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, as if what was said before wasn't enough, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're gonna, we won't do justice to this. So verse 2 had centered around God the Son, who is the heir of all things and through whom God created the world. So the Son, Jesus, is the He that this verse references to begin with. He. So who and or what is this Jesus the Son that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Well, (laughs) oh my. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And we'll just have to... Stop along the side of the road here and look at this for a second. What does that mean? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Albert Moeller explains this well. Verse 3, he says, 
is an exposition of how the Son reveals the Father to us. The idea of radiance goes back to the notion of the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. The Shekinah was a shining, visible glory that demonstrated the majesty of God as in the Exodus and at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Looking at Christ is the way we see most fully the glory of God, Moeller says. And he goes on to say, more than that, Christ is the exact expression of the Father's nature. Christ shares the divine nature with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. This is where the divine Son is different from a human Son. No human Son is the exact representation of His Father. There is a close relation, but not an exact representation. Muller concludes by saying, Christ, however, is an exact representation. He and God are of the same divine essence. End of quote. Jesus is the visible manifestation, the physical manifestation of the invisible God who is spirit. He's the human form of the God who is spirit. John 14, a well-known exchange between Philip and Jesus, we see this. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. If you'll just do that, if you'll just do that for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. But that's not all, our writer says. That's enough, but that's not all. (laughs) Look at this. And He, the Son, upholds the universe by the word of His power. The same powerful Word that created all things now upholds it all. All of it. Every single bit of it. Jesus says to it, hold together. And it does. All of it. All creation obeys its Maker. Rich Mullins said in his song, All the Way to Kingdom Come, if he let go of us, we'd all blow apart. But he holds on tight. His love don't fail. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, 15-17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Now stop just a second. Are all those things that he's talking about here good? Holy? Beautiful? Perfect? There are rulers and authorities that are in rebellion against God, right? There are thrones, visible and invisible, that are rebellious against God. Who created them? The devil? The devil was created by God. 
And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, it says what it says, right? And it means what it means. That's not hard to figure out. Who created everything? Jesus did. Who upholds everything by the word of his power? Jesus does. Everything. Put a pin in that. We'll get back to it later in application. But we have one more thing to look at before we wind it up today. Again, look at this statement in verses 3 and 4. If I can find it. There it is. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the Son shows us the Father. The Son upholds the world and the universe by the word of his power. And then this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we could spend a year here. Because what we have here, we have the doctrine of the atonement. We also have Jesus in the role as the great high priest of God's plan. I want to look at both parts of that quickly. First, the writer says, after making purification for sins. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, the Son, the Son of God. God in the flesh. Made purifications for sins. How did he do that? It's a reference to Jesus shedding His blood to bring about the forgiveness of sins for His people. Now here's where we really need to dip into the Old Testament for some homework. I'm giving you some homework. Remember I said we need to kind of marinate in the Old Testament as we go through Hebrews? Your homework is Leviticus 16. You're like, you didn't say we'd have to do Leviticus. It's beautiful. And it tells us about Jesus. Leviticus 16 is your homework. And let me just give you a brief glimpse into it. Leviticus 16 explains how the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were to be purified from their sins each year on the Day of Atonement. One day a year. Only the high priest. There was one high priest and only the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies. The place where the ark was. The place where the glory of God dwelt. And when he went in there, what he was going in to do was to offer the blood of a goat on the mercy seat. Which is where God sat, metaphorically and kind of physically. He was to offer the blood of this goat to God. Leviticus 16.16 says this. And don't just read verse 16 when you read it at home. Read the whole chapter. Thus he, the high priest, shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Again, spend some time in Leviticus 16 this week and get the whole process and context of this where we see the scapegoat and all this other stuff. But a couple of important things to note in relation to what we're looking at here in Hebrews. Hebrews says that Jesus made purification for sins. That means that Jesus was fulfilling the role of the high priest. But the blood that Jesus offered was His own blood. Not for a ritual cleansing done on a yearly basis, but listen... 
a complete, total, final cleansing once and for all the sins of all of His people. The Old Testament high priest went in once a year, every year, because the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. We'll see that later in Hebrews. That blood of the, of the bulls and the goats could only give the people a knowledge that they had done what God had commanded. But that blood was also a type and a shadow of what God's ultimate goal was. It was a pointer to something and someone else and that was to take away the sins of His people by the sacrifice of Himself in His Son who was God in the flesh shedding holy blood for sinful people. That's the Gospel. The book of Hebrews will develop this through so much, much more. But for now, in today's passage, the writer shows us that Jesus gave His blood to purify His people from their sins. And then it says, after He did so, what happened then? Nope, too far. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what's that mean? What's that about? Well, the high priest in the Old Testament would never sit down when he was doing this purifying work. He was to offer the blood and then get out of there. He didn't dwell in the most holy place. They would even have the high priest wear bells on their outfit and they tie a rope around their ankle just in case they fell dead in the presence of holiness. And if the bell stopped tinkling, they'd start pulling the rope and yank him out of there because he was dead because he didn't handle himself rightly. You don't sit down, hey God, what's up? We're going to sit down and talk, yo. No. Trembling, tinkling, <laughs> bells ringing. <laughs> there might have been some of that too. I don't know. I doubt it. That doesn't clean. Wow. Strike that from the record. You didn't sit down in God's presence. But Jesus did. The work of the Old Testament high priest was never done. It was repeated year after year after year after year after year. But, contrastive conjunction, Jesus, after doing His purifying work, did what? He sat down. He sat on the cross to tell us that it is done. It is finished. It is paid in full, so His work was done and He sat down. Where? In the true Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God, at the right hand, the place of power and honor of the majesty on high. Paul says in Philippians 2 that after Jesus suffered death on a cross, He was highly exalted and was given the name that is above every name. Jesus' purifying work was done! Done! And it was shown to be accepted by God by the fact that Jesus strolled into God's presence and sat down. And He didn't just sit down. He sat down in the highest place and was given the name above every name. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we've got to put a period here today. We'll pick up with this angel business next week, Lord willing. But today we're going to turn to application from all this mega-dense doctrine and theology in these three little verses. And don't forget to spend time in Leviticus 16. Read it, think about it, 
pray about it, talk about it, think about the requirements of the atonement, what was being accomplished, who was doing what, who received what from it. Dig into the whole concept of atonement. Think about the blood and how all of that applies to us now after the finished work of Jesus. But we're going to look at application through three W's. Word, world, work. Word, world, work. Word, word, work, 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 work. And I want to put those three words in the context of Jesus as God's better word, Jesus as God's better world, Jesus as God's better work. First word. Let me read this passage again. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus as God's better word. Now let me preface this by saying this. The Old Testament is incomplete. It's not bad. It's not wrong. It's not faulty. Mind you. What the Old Testament does is sets the stage for God's perfect plan to be revealed in and through Jesus. And I'm saying that because we are not red letter people. I don't despise red letter Bibles, but I don't like them very much. Why? Because so many people say, well, I just read the red letters. As if to say the other letters aren't inspired or aren't good enough. I do not want to imply by anything I've said today or that anything that the writer of Hebrews is saying that the Old Testament is bad, wrong, faulty. It's not. It's necessary. It sets the stage for the final perfect word to be spoken. Instead of being red letter people, we are to be those who recognize that it's all of His words that are important. And that all of those words tell us about Jesus. And set the stage for Jesus' incarnation, which was the perfect fulfillment of all that God wanted to say and do. Everything else prior to the incarnation, everything else prior to Jesus' work, and everything that came after it, and that will come after it, are pointers back to what God has said through the life of Jesus. Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. So it's, it's right word. It's good word. It's perfect word. But in these last days, He has spoken in a better way, meaning a complete way, a perfect way. The other ways leading up to that weren't wrong. They just weren't meant to be perfect in that they gave us the full picture. Jesus, however, as God's better word, did tell us everything we needed to know. I mentioned it earlier. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness, John says about Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and that was good. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, which was better. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Prophetic words gave us glimpses and gave us teaser trailers, and maybe even a full preview. But then Jesus showed up and was the better, complete, perfect representation of what God wanted to say to us. So what's the application? The application is, first of all, don't discount anything but the red letters. It's good. It's pointing us to Him. And then if we want to see God perfectly, how do we see Him now? Anybody seen Jesus lately? You have not. We've got a book, y'all. And in that book is the perfect, full, complete revelation of who God is, what God desires for us, and what He has done and what He's going to do. And that word is about Jesus. Jesus is God's better word. And we have in our 66 books of the Bible everything we need pertaining to life and godliness because they all point us to Jesus. He has made Him known. So, the application is read your Bible. Second application point is world. Now, this is where I want to explore creation. This is a little bit different than what you may think it is. I said earlier that through the Word, through the Son, God created all things. Right? Rulers, principalities. Let me say this about the creation that the Son spoke into existence. This world... And the fall, and all that has, and all that will happen is no mistake. The plan has always been the plan, and will always be the plan. Listen to me. And the creating work of Jesus was perfect, is perfect and was not foiled nor spoiled by the actions of any man. Jesus did not fail when He created the world. He set forth a plan in this creation that would bring the ultimate glory to God. And what did that include? It included a devil. 
It included sin. It included the fall. It included sickness and death. It included your sinful heart. What's that mean? So what? Oh my, listen to me. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are. I don't care what you're thinking, feeling, or going through. Listen to me. Your situation is not hopeless. Your life is not beyond God's grasp or God's ability to show Himself good in and through Jesus who cannot fail, who created the world and formed the plan that included sin and the fall and everything else we just talked about. And He continues to uphold it all by the word of His power. Nothing is slipping through the cracks or the holes in Jesus' plan. Nothing! Sovereignty means sovereignty. Romans 8.28 And God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him who are the called according to His purposes is true. It's always been true. Since before creation, it will always be true in eternity future, what we call eternity future. I don't have this up there, but this is Romans 9, 22-24. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That sounds mean. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Listen to me. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Triune God, did not make a universe that slipped out of His control so that He, oh, I better send Jesus to fix this and bail me out. That was never the plan. You are never out of God's reach. You are never out of God's plan. Now, is your sin and your choosing to sin His plan? (laughs) God is sovereign and man is responsible. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. It's not by accident. You can't outsin the reach of the grace of God. The God of the resurrection is sovereign over the cross. The God of forgiveness is sovereign over the sin. The God of your salvation is sovereign over your sinful heart. The Father who loves the Son perfectly was well pleased to crush him. That's mind bending. And I want to encourage you today that the plan of God is perfect. The creation that Jesus Christ, the Word of God created, is, was, and always will be perfect. Marred by sin? Yes. Was that His plan? Yes. Ecclesiastes 7.13 Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? And what's the answer? Only He can. Which is why we need God's better work. Word, world, and finally work. The world as is 
needed a Redeemer. And there is a Redeemer. Jesus, God's own Son. The world needed redeemed, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is God's better work. Not that the other was wrong. It was leading us to this. It was leading us to the atonement. And listen, we read today that after making purifications for sin, purification for sins, Jesus sat down. Listen, church. That means His work is complete and perfect and over and done as far as making purification for sins. Now, He's still doing stuff. Listen to me. Born again believer, Spirit of God within you, you have been purified from your sins. Have been purified from all your sins. Unbeliever, you can be purified from your sins. How? Trusting in the perfect, complete, finished work of Jesus Christ who as a holy God-man poured out His blood as His body was broken so that the atonement, the work of God to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west could be accomplished. And we are saved now by the grace of God as we place our faith in that finished work believing that He accomplished the purification from our sins. Oh my Ephesians 1, 7 to 10. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of our effort. Thank God that's not what it says. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is God's better work. And that work was the removal of sins from the lives of His people so that we might see Him as better, so that we might receive His Word as better, so that we might see His world as better, so that we might receive this work of redemption as better than anything we could ever hope to accomplish ourselves. God has accomplished it. And Jesus is better. Let's pray. Father, we do not seek to straighten that which You have bent. Because You have bent it in such a way that it is for Your ultimate glory. You have not, You will not, You are not failing. You are in sovereign control of every quark in the universe. We're not beyond your reach. We're not beyond your grasp. Even when we try to hide our faces from you, you run up the road to meet us. You call us back. You love us. And you remind us that there is a Redeemer. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah. Holy One. And He is ours. He is the exact imprint of your nature. 
Help us to see Him and know Him and love Him. And help us to know the redemption He has accomplished. To purify us from our sins by the shedding of His blood. Thank You for speaking, Father. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this perfect world and this perfect plan that You're working. Thank You for accomplishing the work of redemption for Your people. And we give You praise and ask for Your help to understand and implement it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just stand and receive a benediction. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay in here with us if you can.